Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. On this week's episode of One Hour Intern, I learned from original member of NWA, legendary rapper, actor, filmmaker, businessman, and cultural phenomenon, Ice Cube. So let's get some context about you right now with everything going on in America and everyone finally realizing the social injustice that's occurred in our nation for years. You've become a social justice champion and are head of the Black Lives Matter movement right now, especially with your contract to Black America. Can you talk about what you've been doing and what you think young people and just people around the world should be doing to have the most effect on change? I don't want to mischaracterize myself. You know, I'm not the head of the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, it's two separate things. I believe there's a actual organization, but then there is somewhat of a slogan that's taking hold as far as Black Lives Matter. So some people are part of the organization. Some people are just part of the sentiment, somewhat like we shall overcome. So I'm part of Black equality. I don't feel like I'm the leader of anything, but I am a leader. And I've chosen to be that at this time because I believe it is a time for my generation to step up in this category. You know, when it comes to civil rights, equality, and trying to push our people forward in this country. So, you know, that's the place I feel most comfortable as. There's a lot of leaders out there and a lot of people out there who have great ideas on how to move the culture forward. So, you know, I feel like, you know, I may have the loudest voice at this time, which is cool. And, um, you know, I'm willing to to do whatever I need to do to uh, get some justice and equality. And then I'll go back to performing and entertaining and doing what I do for a living. For other people who are not as influential as you and are not leaders, What are the steps that they can be taking to impact change? I believe, you know, speaking up on it, especially when somebody is out of line, I think, you know, when we feel like we're around our own people, that we can let people get away with saying stuff that that's a little over the line. Most people laugh it off or ignore it. But I think now is the time to say, That ain't really cool. You know, the bully mentality that we've all grown up with has got to end somewhere. That don't mean you soft. That don't mean you letting people off the hook. You know, I think uh, pressuring people to do the right thing is powerful. But I just think we have to start in our own circles. And then from there, you can look at any kind of a local government. A lot of people overlook local government when they're young because they're always looking at the president, if looking at the president at all. But that's usually where people start. But people actually can affect their community at the local level, really understanding who's being elected and what they're about. District attorneys is very important. I mean, mayors, of course, and city council. These are people that that everybody ignore, 
but these are the people that can affect you the day they're elected for real because they're in your city so sometimes it's cool to to start at the local level and look around you and see who you like and who you don't then state level governors and attorney generals of the state and things like that all of it sound born like boring stuff until you get arrested by the police or you or you get in the situation you know now you want to know who's those who those people are because you're caught in their web so while you're free of their situations now's the time to put in the people who they might not get you but they might get your friend you know they might get your cousin they might get your uncle or your auntie your relative so we gotta take serious the people that rule over us and who have the power to make our lives miserable if they don't agree with who we are so that's why we start and then of course the federal who's the president and, and, and senators and congress people but do not ignore the local level you can actually have a lot of power you can actually make your vote count on the local level you can actually have a movement that changes people's mind if your movement making enough noise on a certain candidate or topic or so use your power you don't always have to have an ultimate power but use whatever power you got or you might know somebody who work in the justice system you might know somebody that work in the financial system where you saying hey you giving people a shot you giving everybody a shot is there's things that you can do to influence the people you know you know the worst thing to do is to feel hopeless and helpless because there's things you could do to move the needle and even if you move the needle for one family you know one person it means a lot i saw a commercial one time where a guy was he was talking about throwing a starfish back into the ocean that was on the sand and then somebody asked him man millions of starfish out here you think you're making a difference he said well i'm making a difference to that one i threw back in there so sometimes that's good enough to get you to the next d and all this stuff helps your soul you know money is great making a lot of money you can buy a lot of things but some of the most unhappy people have the most things, but they don't have people that love them around them. And they're miserable with all the things you can buy. So money is a tool, it's not a God. And people are the real value. And so that's, that's why you wanna see everybody have a shot. You know, some people are idiots. They, they're just gonna do bad no matter how many opportunities you give them. But we're not talking about those people. You know what I mean? We're talking about the people who need a shot. They just need a shot. You know, if I didn't get a shot, you wouldn't see Ice Cube. You wouldn't know who Ice Cube is if I didn't get a shot. Somebody didn't give me a chance. Somebody didn't put resources behind me, my ideas. You wouldn't know nothing about me. So everybody needs that now that we've set some context let's go back to you before you had your shot can you talk about your childhood and who you were like as a kid 
You know, I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. It's actually a nice lower middle class neighborhood. The things that the youth did to entertain ourselves were not nice. Some of it was, you know. I mean, we did everything on my street. Football, basketball, baseball, go-karts, mini bikes, motorcycles, skateboards. We built ramps, water balloon fights, but also gang banging, people fighting, people coming into the neighborhood looking to, to shoot or hurt people. So all that was mixed into my childhood. I grew up on the street. We had a lot of boys of all ages, you know, from way older than me to way younger than me. And all of us mixed and figured out our neighborhood pecking order, so to speak, in all things, you know, sports, dress, fighting, everything, you know, was a, a somewhat of a, what people would call a sidewalk university type of learning outside of school and the things with church and things that where people were trying to steer you in the right direction. So, you know, you have a lot of choices. You could do the right thing or you could do the wrong thing. And those choices depended on how strong you was to me. This is how I see it. Sometimes people weren't strong enough to resist the peer pressure. Sometimes people were strong enough to resist the peer pressure. So I feel like I was lucky in a lot of ways because my mother and father lived in the household and both were concerned about my well-being. Also had brothers and sisters who were older than me who had established a pecking order in the neighborhood themselves. So, you know, even though I had to to figure out my way, my family was pretty much known on the street as a family that would mind our business, but didn't mind getting down if you wanted to invade our space. So that's just how I grew up. How did your brothers and your sisters and both your parents impact you value-wise and making it so that you really were strong enough to resist the peer pressure and move to such great places in your life? Well, my mother and father are both strong people who have, you know, to me, great values. You know, my mother is the type of person who really wants you to do the right thing in all situations. My father is a do-whatever-it-takes kind of guy. So he says, you know, do whatever it takes. And so having those two people in your life is pretty, pretty good because you have a nice balance. My father didn't believe in breaking the law. So, you know, it wasn't that influence on me at all. And my brothers and sisters, they eight years older than me, nine years older than me, and 10 years older than me. So they could go anywhere in the neighborhood and they knew everybody. And, you know, I got a brother that's pretty rowdy, good dude. He's pretty rowdy though. And I got a sister who is a down for whatever kind of person. And I got an older sister who's kind of quiet, but she'll fight you in a minute. So, you know, that's the household I grew up in. I loved it. It's a lot of love, but a lot of freedom to 
you know, figure out who you are, be who you are. And there's a lot of support. For people who don't have that same amount of support, what advice would you give them? Well, you know, I would say you still have to be self-motivated. You know, at the end of the day, everybody didn't take the advice of my mother and father and my family. You know, some people did, some people didn't. So everybody has free will. So even if you had all the, the support in the world, you would still have to make the decision to go on the right path or the wrong path. Worst thing in the world can be a built-in excuse where you know, okay, I didn't have a father, whatever. I can, that's why I'm like this. But there's plenty of people in my neighborhood who both parents in the household, great household, church going people, and they still got life in prison. And I knew people in my neighborhood who mother was scratching and fighting for every dollar and these guys became very successful people. So it's still at the end of the day, free will. And the world will excuse you somewhat if you have built-in excuses for why you don't turn out to be a great person. And you could take all those, you know, all that pity, but the world really is amazed when you come out of those circumstances and become a great person. So what kind of way you wanna be seen in the world? Do you wanna be a person that the world is amazed at? Or a person where the world say, yeah, you didn't have a chance, go on, we feel sorry for you. You're pitiful, we know. So I just think it's all in the attitude because Having both parents in the household and, and brothers and sisters who give you great advice or not, or give you dumb advice, whatever, or your parents could give you dumb advice. But it's still all, at the end of the day, free will. Everybody at a young age learns right from wrong. You always know when you're doing right, and you always know when you're doing wrong. Were there any big times? in your life where you succumbed to the pressure, you didn't have the strength to do it, you didn't take the advice of your family and you did wrong, you went with the pity party excuse? I would say running with the crowd, that's what you get swept up in more when you know you get swept up in peer pressure from people your own age. Sometimes having the strength to withstand that moment of avalanche or tsunami or peer pressure by everybody you care about around you at this moment, talking about do it, do it, do it, do it. How strong are you? How much fortitude do you have to say, that ain't for me, I'm not doing it. Can you take the ridicule and be comfortable with your decision? See, that's what you have to find inside. It's all inside you because I've learned just through the years, I'd rather make the wrong decision, that's my decision, than to make the wrong decision and it's your decision. So I can live with being wrong. I can live with being laughed at because I didn't make the right decision. I can live with that, but I can't live with somebody else 
lead me astray or somebody else convincing me to do something I knew I shouldn't have did and it don't turn out right. See, that's where I would eat myself up. And that's where most people say, damn, I should have I should have listened to my first mind. That's what most people say. I should have listened to my first mind. And you should have. You know, that don't mean I'm stubborn to the point where if somebody show me greater facts, if somebody show me a better way, if somebody show me where I'm wrong, you know, I'm not too stubborn to rethink it. But sometimes you want to give yourself time. You don't want to let somebody make you make a decision when they want you to make a decision. Sometimes take that night to sleep on it. Sometimes write out those pros and cons. The pros and cons are what I'm, my decision, meaning what's going to be good about what I'm doing and what's going to be bad about what I'm doing. And be honest with yourself. And that way you will see if that con list is longer than the pro list, you might not want to do it. But if the pro list is bigger than the con list or the con list is not so bad, then you may want to try it. That's another tool where you're using yourself to make a decision and not other people's thought pattern. So those are the things. And if people don't understand the, the term pros and cons, Google it, you'll understand it, but it's the pros are the things that's good for your decision. And the cons are the things that's bad in the decision that you make. And so those are the type of things you can do to make sure that even though you're getting pressure from all sides, that the decision is still yours at the end of the day. Now, let's go to when you were 17. The year was 1986. The biggest song was That's What Friends Are For. Top Gun was the hot flick and NWA was official. What was life like at this time? It was a whole new world in a way. You know, even though I had been around you know, Dr. Dre and Yella and, and those guys while they were in the record crew about 84. By 86, I had wrote Boys in the Hood. And it was like the biggest record at that time that Dre had produced for kind of on his own thing. I, you know, I might be mistaken. You know, Dre got a long history. But... um it was a big record for our clique. Finally, we were doing music that we liked and agreed with 100% because Lonzo Williams really ran the Wrecking Crew and really was the final say on what kind of music was being produced. So, and it was the era of, it's like Prince and Michael Jackson and those people were on top. It was still the, you know, big bands of the 70s era trying to reinvent itself. So people were still caught up in that kind of glitzy black musician feel. And so we were coming with something straight street, you know, no glitz, no glamour, just neighborhood street clothes and you know which was a style that run dmc started to push in a way even though they were 
uniformed in what they was wearing, but it was like, you don't have to have glitz and, and glitter and ruffles and stuff, you know what I mean? Just be yourself. And so that's what we were doing. So, so to make a long story short, it was starting to get good. You know, people were starting to respect who we were and the music was new and fresh and the possibilities was endless on which way we could go and doing songs like Boys in the Hood. So we got right back in the studio in 86 and start working on new material in a way because Boys in the Hood was still Easy e song. So we still didn't have the concept in our mind of we're about to be NWA. We were still somewhat trying to find out what we need to do as our, our own groups. So Dre was still in the Wrecking Crew somewhat. I was still in a group called CIA, which was Criminals in Action. But, but Lonzo made us change it to Crew in Action because he would he was like, who the hell would buy a record from a group called Criminals in Action? So. You know, those were the type of decisions that was being made. And we wanted to come out of that. So we started to do these underground street records. No label, just put them out. They were like parodies of hit songs, hit rap songs. And then we started to work on a song that was like my first real big solo record called Dope Man. And that just made us think like we need to form a group because with Lonzo you're only gonna be able to do these nice kind of rap records <laughs> with easy he's letting us do you know gangster records which wasn't called gangster records they were reality rap he was like he letting us do the reality stuff so we started to figure out what, what we're gonna do and we was thinking of a name for the group and how did you take the leap of faith to really move from something that was more secure working with Lonzo to starting your own group? It was really easy. You know, he was bankrolling it. You know, he was a, a hustler out of Compton and he wanted to change his life because his cousin had gotten murdered in the dope game and he was close with his cousin and he just wanted to get out because, you know, people don't really expect to lose close people until it happened. So he was looking for a way out and he wanted to be a manager. And he had a few groups, you know, JJ Fab was his group. Supersonic is one of his songs that people might still know. So he wanted to just be part of the music industry. He saw that it wasn't exactly rocket science and he had the the money to, to to do his own label so that's really what gave us you know me i'm 15 16 years old so i don't have no money to pay for these studio sessions so if lonzo gonna let us go to the studio i'm i'm, I'm rocking with with lonzo you know, I helped write some of those Wrecking Crew records, you know, one or two of them back in the day. But Easy was letting us be free and be and do the kind of records we wanted to do and actually encouraging 
the style and the and the flavor. And so it was more freedom. And we to me was like, okay, now we real MCs. Like it's not, you know, I'm not worried about a glitter suit and dance moves, you know. Even though I never did that stuff, but I'm saying the lead group, the wrecking crew was was into a, a big, you know, show performance like that. So we was like, we could be ourselves and do the records we wanted to do. So everybody started to gravitate towards Easy. And then once he decided to become a, a actual artist, which he didn't want to, but if you watch the movie straight out of Compton, he ended up rapping Boys in the Hood instead of the group that he was managing. And so he became a star overnight with that record. And so he wanted to follow up, but he wanted to create an all-star group around him. And the all-star group was NWA. He plucked us all from our groups where we couldn't really do the kind of records we wanted to do. So now we was able to do whatever we thought of that was dope. So what were your takeaways from your experience with NWA and that transition into that group? We had spent years trying to chase who we call the professionals. That was New York rappers, you know, they they were on top. Beastie Boys, LL, Run DMC, Rock Kim, Karis One, Big Daddy Kane, Chuck D, Public. These are the ones on top. These are professionals. We're still trying to get a grip in our own city. And we didn't until we we thought something that was truly organic. When we first started doing records, we didn't know the, the, the records would go so big because they were dirty. They were, you know, they had profanity on them. So we thought the records were only gonna have limited success. And we didn't care. This was just real to us. And we was just gonna do what was real. And we was happy being local stars. If we were just stars in LA, Compton, Watts, Inglewood, Long Beach, we'd have been happy. But we did something organic and it got us to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You dig what I'm saying? So yeah. it wasn't about chasing those other groups like like uh, the Wrecking Crew probably was doing and, and other LA groups was probably doing. It was all about doing something that was true to us and our heart and our soul. And we didn't really think about reaping the benefits. And what happened was we reaped the benefits because we, we came up with something that was too real to deny. So that to me, that's the lesson from being in NWA is Sometimes it's not about following the trends, but following your heart and following what you believe is a great idea or to be happy with bringing this into existence and being satisfied with whatever benefits you may get out of it. You know, sometimes it's like, yo, I'm happy to just get this into the world, whether I make a quarter on it the world is going to know about this. So, and then it ends up making you rich beyond your wildest dreams. So I think everybody take the Facebook Zuckerberg 
thing. These dudes seem like they just wanted it to be in existence. And look, it turns into this mega thing. Sometimes it's just following your gut, your heart, and bringing something into the world that that is going to be great to me for the world. And I think, you know, when it comes to gangster rap music, a lot of people have their knocks on it because gangster rap music and hardcore rap, period, talks about the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I think at the end of the day, people should appreciate what they learn from these records more than worrying about, is this a good message? Is this a good this? Is this a good that? And that's how old people think, I think. It's really all about, do you see what I'm showing you? (laughs) Are you seeing what I'm showing you? That's what it's about, communication. I think that's a good point to go to the coffee break. From your whole life experience, what's one of the funniest moments, a time when you get embarrassed thinking about yourself, but you can laugh at yourself? Man, you know, that's that's kind of a hard question because, like, I'm usually very confident and happy in my decisions, even if it don't turn out right. I haven't really had any truly crazy, embarrassing moments where, you know, I can really just be like, when I think about this moment, I got to laugh at myself. Maybe I ain't thinking hard enough. Maybe I'll put it in a drawer. I can't get it up. You know, sometimes it's so horrific, you you back out of it. It's it's just hard to come up with something that I can say, okay, this is is my go-to funny uh, story. No, that's fine. About myself, yeah. Let me ask you then, how is it that you've built that confidence that you, even if you mess up in the end, you're okay with the decision that you made? I'm satisfied with failure if it's my decision. I can live with myself. I don't get down. I just get better. In Hollywood and and in the music industry, you know, trying to be strong and not just be a tool. And I built up a resistance. I'm very battle hardened. I've been in a lot of battles over my beliefs since I was a young dude, you know, a teenager, sitting in front of the press at 18 years old and then shooting arrows at you about how you are the worst thing to happen, you know, to music since, you know, whatever, and having to defend who you are, where you come from, and why you make these kind of records. It just got me to a point where I know who I am and nobody can get to that. My core is to a point where nothing can get to it. Nothing can kind of penetrate that because I know who I am. So I'm willing to stand on what I believe in. I think that's what's giving it to me. You know, it's just understanding that you're not going to always make the right decisions. You're not gonna always make everybody happy. I learned that in the business. Half the people love my records, half the people hate my records. Half the people love my movies, half the people hate my movies. 
Half the people so love Ice Cube, half the people hate Ice Cube. So that's really what it is, is having a place that people can get to. So for other people facing criticism with their work and trying to make it like you were, what advice do you give to them so that they're okay with the fact that half the people are going to like them and half the people aren't? I think you uh, accept that in your mind before you even start a project that no matter how good I do, half the people are going to have something to say about this or more. You know, everybody might have something to say and that's fine. Everybody had, can have their opinion. So don't take people's opinion. Like, don't say nothing to me, you know, don't reject everything. Listen, some of it could be good criticism. Some of them could help you on the next project. Some of them could help you improve your project. But my thing is people can say something about what you do, but that don't mean you have to do something different. And that don't mean you have to get mad or say, I don't like this person because he didn't like what I did. You know, it's like, I've learned that things are painting. Like you're like a painter, your life, you're like a painter. Sometimes once you finish the painting and hang it on the wall, whether people like it or not, it's none of your business, it's their business. That's their problem. If they don't like what you put up there, you're gone. So sometimes, you can look at a person who has a problem with what you did and say, that sounds like a personal problem. You know, that sounds like your problem. You know, I used to get mad at racist people who just were, you know, mean. They didn't have no power over I me. Mean, they was just, you know, they just hate black people. So I was like, well, you know, I hate you too. But that's not the way to be. The way to be is, and I learned this over the years, somebody don't like you, that's actually their problem until they make it your problem. Now, you can stand over there all day and not like me. That's your problem. But once you come into my personal space or you try to affect my life, then it becomes my problem. But until then, you can stand over there all you want. When it becomes yes. your problem, what do you do? Deal with it accordingly. I don't know, it depends on what the issue is, but I'm saying it's not your duty to deal with it before it's a problem. Now, if it's people who have power over you from the jump and they're racist, or, you know, then you have to deal with it before it becomes an issue for you, you know? But yeah. if you're just talking about a citizen and you're a citizen and they can do no harm to you and you can do no harm to them, and they're just standing over there with a, t-shirt on you don't like who gives a damn as long as you don't come in my space affect my life who cares on a very different note you got a degree in architectural drafting can you explain during your time in nwa <laughs> can you explain why you made that decision and how that affected your life first of all degree is stretching it it's a certificate you know it was a trade school and i went for a year so I don't want to take credit for having a degree. So what happened was like, we're West Coast rappers, you know, you gotta look back at the time, the West Coast wasn't known on the international stage as producing big rap groups. So 
and we were doing underground hardcore music. So even though, you know, I left LA to go to Phoenix the day Dope Man came out, you know, and I ended up spending a year there from September 87 to September 88. I would fly home every weekend, but I would have to to be there and be away from the group who was starting to really blow up and have success. So I was kind of missing out. You know, they were starting to get shows, starting to travel all over the country. And I was I was stuck in school. But I had made a commitment that I didn't want to break because I wanted something to fall back on just in case we didn't become rap stars or whatever. So being 18 years old and not knowing where your life is going, it was the right decision to make. Uh, even though I didn't want to be there a lot, but I followed through. I got good grades. You know, I didn't. I didn't just dial it in. And when it was over, you know, I connected back with the group. Like I said, Southwest they was selling plane tickets for like thirty dollars. <laughs> L.A. to you know one way twenty nine dollars. L.A. to Phoenix. So I was able to fly back and forth because it was so cheap, but it still wasn't like being with the group, you know, 24 seven in the studio all the time, but I come back and contribute. And so it was tough, but I'm glad I did it. You know, I still got my certificate diploma and I'm still proud of the time that I spent in Phoenix. Cause I, you know, met a lot of cool friends, you know, actually the song, fuck the police would not even be around if I didn't go to Phoenix because I had wrote the song before I left. Dre didn't like it because he was he was dealing with the sheriffs. He had to go back and forth to the county jail. He was like, they was letting him out on a furlough. But he was like, man, I'm not doing this song and I got to deal with the sheriffs every weekend. So I was about to throw it away, about to throw it in the trash. And one of my guys from Phoenix who had heard me rap it, pulled it out the trash and put it back in my notebook. I was like, nah, it's too good. You can't, you can't throw this one away. So by the time I had finished school and it was time to work on the NWA album, I brought the song back up. And then Dre, who he wasn't, you know, doing weekends in the county no more, Dre ended up saying, yeah, let's do it. You know, fuck these police. I hate them. You know, so that was like the the way the song ended up being made. And, you know, if I didn't go to Phoenix, I might have threw the song away and never brought it back up again. So we are getting close to the time that you have to go. So I want to zoom out and have you just think about your life as a whole. Are there any particular failure moments that have played a really important role in your life? Yeah. When I first started to to do music, we had we was we had joined this contest that the radio station was was doing called Best Rappers of the West. We like made it all the way to the finals and somebody messed up our music. And when I say somebody, because they were controlling the audio, we ended up coming in second place. So I'm like, damn, you know, we was like right there as NWA. You know, we got booed at the Apollo Theater. This was before we were really known 
on the East Coast. We had one or two little records out, but we wasn't known like we are now. Yeah, we was at the seminar. During the seminar in New York, it was called the New Music Seminar. They would uh, have different groups, you know, come down to the seminar and then go rap at the Apollo. So they had the biggest rappers in New York right there going through there, you know, and rocking the crowd all day. And then here come this West Coast group that nobody knew about. You know, we had Jerry Curls that they wasn't rocking with at all. You know, it's like they ended up booing us. And so being booed at a historical black theater like that could wreck your confidence. But I ended up going back there a few years later and they threw money on the stage. So it was a big turnaround. Recently, we went after, you know, and your pops noticed, but we went after uh, trying to buy these RSNs, regional sports networks. And, you know, we needed a lot of money to try to buy that. And so it took us a long time to really collect all the money. And then we ended up like 12 hours late and they sold it to somebody else because it took us a little too long. We was 12 hours late on getting all the money together. So that was a big failure, you know, and um, it was public and it could really wreck your confidence and your ego and all that stuff. But always look at it like this. If something doesn't happen for you, it's not supposed to happen. If we would have bought those RSNs, we'd be pulling out our hair right now with so many games canceled, people moving to the streaming platform at a whole different clip, a different level. It would have been a world of problems. So maybe God jumped in there and said, hey, you don't really need this even though you want it so bad. Maybe this is not for you. So sometimes, you know, I always chalk it up. If we don't get something, the universe don't want us to have it. And I can accept that and I move on. And I think thinking like that, you don't take the failures to heart. You always say, okay, what did I do wrong? What could I have done better? And I don't have this for a reason. Move on. I wish that we had more time, but we are do have to close soon. So I want to ask my last couple of questions being, how would you define success after your whole life experience? And what's the next step for you? To me, success is happiness, respect, and wisdom. They're like one word answers. But, you know, I know a lot of people who have a lot of money and all the things they want, but they don't have respect from people in the industry or they are not happy you know, at the end of the day. And it's not sometimes just you being happy, but your family and people around you that love you, them being happy, them having respect for you. To me, these this is success. People who want your wisdom and want you around and want to make you happy and you want to make them happy not users, but real people, genuine. So, you know, no matter how you cut it, if you don't have those things, you're not going to be successful to me. You may be successful at making money. You may be successful at 
buying and building things, but that that plays out too. Doing big things like play out too. You know, it's really about how happy am I from day to day with what I'm doing? Am I truly happy each day? That's really what it's all about, man. Because if, if you haven't created a world that creates that, that's what you should be trying to create. It's like, I saw this dude, he had like 2,500 cars. This is what I heard. He had so rich, he got 2,500 cars. Some king of whatever, dictator, whoever the hell. But your ass can only drive one at a time. You can only sit in one at a time. So why have all that stuff, like, why have all them things, you know, when you really only can enjoy one thing at a time, you know, most of the time. So that's what I would say. It's a a convoluted answer, but, you know, I hope people can find what they need out of that. Okay. Well, at the end of the internship, our final segment is the PowerPoints where if someone was to take away three things from your life and from our conversation, what would those three things be? I would say to trust yourself. Don't look for the common excuse to do wrong. Find your happiness in your decisions. Live with your decisions. And other people may have a problem with your decisions, but in the long run, that's usually their problem, not yours. On the next episode of One Hour Intern, I learn from current athletic director at Stanford University, Bernard Muir. You want to seek out the experts and engage with them and find out what did they do to get to that path? You know, they just didn't all of a sudden happen. Uh, it took some time and, and effort. And so you've got to figure out what was their secret. And then you're going to create your own. If you really want something, you really have to go at it full bore, study, be a sponge, be a student of the craft, and continue to learn. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks.